Welcome to The Dialectic, a fair observer podcast by the Rajput and the Wasp. I'm Atul Singh, the founder, CEO and editor-in-chief of Fair Observer. I'm the Rajput. And I'm Glenn Carl, and I am the Wasp. In our last episode, we made sense, or tried to, of Vladimir Putin. In this episode, we analyze the implications of Putin's Russian invasion of Ukraine, the great event of our time. So, Glenn, what exactly is going on? You're a retired CIA officer. You have uh, played hide-and-seek with the Russians during the Cold War. You're probably in the best uh, position, the best place to educate someone like me as to what exactly is going on. (laughs) You're falsely modest, but uh, becomingly so. It's hard to separate, really, what we talked about in our last episode with what is happening uh, in Ukraine and what we'll try to speak about uh, today. Uh, You can't really separate Putin's motivations and character, his worldview, from the events. They define everything. And and those who have argued against the, quote, great man theory of history, that's, um, I think, uh, have been shown to be grievously wrong. In, In most of my life, I would say. So we're talking several generations now. It's been really since the the end of World War One or maybe World War Two. So a long time. It's been fashionable or the conventional wisdom to deride uh, the significance of great men. This is this rejection is due in part to the uh, triumph in many ways of Marxist theory, and, and I'm not saying that to say that I agree with it, but it just has come to frame the uh, perceptions and the debate of the intelligentsia. And uh, this invasion in Ukraine, uh, if if anything can, should, uh, should uh, permanently debunk the theory that individuals don't matter uh, fundamentally in history. Uh, the invasion would not have occurred uh, were it not for Vladimir Putin. So what is, is going on? Well, the facts are, we all know the facts, that the Russian army has invaded Ukraine. The initial objectives of the Russian government are that it would, quote, denazify um, the Ukrainian government. Of course, there are no Nazis uh, in the Ukrainian government. <clears throat> and as we all should know, uh, ironically and, and rather outrageously, from the, uh, if you swallow the Russian perspective, the president of Ukraine is is a Jew. So it's it's an obscene uh, allegation, but that's the ostensible reason for the invasion. <clears throat> the, the real reason uh, is actually multiple. It's uh, Ukraine in some ways is secondary. Uh, Vladimir Putin is seeking to uh, reinstall, uh, recreate the uh, Russian Empire, and uh, also to uh, push back, if not to uh, undermine and destroy, the NATO alliance, which really is, in his view, a a tool for American imperial hegemony. All of which, the West, the United States, NATO, the loss of Central Europe, uh, Russia's empire, 
Vladimir Putin views as literally existential threats. Uh, for him, the world is a zero-sum game. International relations is a zero-sum game. And unless Russia triumphs, it will fail. And so uh, he feels uh, compelled uh, that it is, it is his duty, as well as his destiny, to um, reabsorb Ukraine and undermine uh, the West's power, which otherwise he views as, a th as an existential threat particularly on the Russian border. Well, Glenn, we wrote about this in our long article on Christmas Eve, uh, on 24th when, of December last year, when we published our long article. We went into the roots of Russian resentment. We went into this extraordinary sense of loss, what uh, Vladimir Putin called the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century when millions of Russians, in his view, suddenly became foreigners in their own land. Um, and we talked about how, in a way, the old uh, pre-revolution czarist ideas have come storming back. Uh, this appeal to the Orthodox Church, this sense of Slavic nationalism or Russian nationalism, to be precise, this... Uh, 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 idea of being a great Eurasian power. Uh, and all of that uh, drives Putin, as does the sense of revenge that uh, uh, people, uh, you know, uh, people who went to your school, Harvard, and the great headline, remember, the Harvard boys do Russia, was about Jeffrey Sachs and his ilk uh, bringing shock therapy to Russia. Instead of, instead of, um, the Marshall Plan, the Russians got uh, shock therapy. And in a way, when we look back at this era, the 1990s may go down as America's Versailles moment because shock therapy actually uh, did give a huge economic shock and it, gave, provide, uh, it, it did provide Russia uh, with another shock, Vladimir Putin. Had it not been for shock therapy, Putin would not be president. And had he not been president, we wouldn't be in the mess today. So, you know, sometimes, as they say, you know, the fluttering of the wings of a butterfly may cause a hurricane on the other side of the world. And um, this is not quite as uh, far-fetched an analogy, but there are many variables that went into it. And what's going on right now is, in a way, Russia is attempting to retain its great power status. Russia is trying to check U.S. expansion as it sees it in its uh, spheres of influence. Uh, Russia is uh, reclaiming its historic kingdom of Rus, which lies in modern-day Ukraine, and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, we we, uh, we discussed uh, before this podcast that we'd go into why these things are happening. And, and one of the things you talked about was Russian real politic versus the Western normative liberal system. And mm -hmm. as, uh, as uh, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant who created, or, uh, you didn't exactly create, but your forefathers created it, created this system, what do you have to say about this? Well, the, how we see the world will, will really, uh, that becomes reality. I mean, reality is, is uh, multiple. It depends on one's perspective. And you sound like Peter ways. Isaacson now. <laughs> <laughs> I've been infected by postmodernist structuralism, I suppose. Post um, well, <laughs> the 
probably the most uh, prominent realpolitik uh, person uh, or um, uh, disciple, believer, uh, proselytizer is uh, Professor Mearsheimer from uh, Chicago. Uh, and he's, he's brilliant. He's, uh, he's absolutely very, very compelling brilliant. in his arguments. For him, the concern about uh, capitalism or communism, the liberal normative order, uh, Russian pan-Slavism, all of these things uh, are secondary to uh, the fact, the reality of international relations, which is that it is a zero-sum game, that by definition, any power will uh, seek one to survive, and to survive must seek to expand its influence. And that if its influence does not expand, uh, then uh, it is um, declining. Stasis doesn't really exist. There's an endless clash. It's a very Hobbesian view of of the world. And therefore, um, it was an error by NATO to expand into what's now Central Europe after the fall of the Soviet Union because, goes the argument, of course, uh, Russia would view this as an existential threat. It cannot be otherwise. Well, that's not just uh, his view, very much, Glenn, to be, to be no, fair. That's George view. Kennan's view and others uh, take the same view as well. Yes, yeah, true, true. Well, you know, I, I too am largely a realist with a, but of a different, slightly different strain. I'm a liberal realist, I think, uh, which we'll possibly get to. Um, but from this perspective, and, and it's very compelling, it explains much of history and, and uh, more accurately than just about any other uh, framework. Uh, of course, uh, Russia would react. Now, from the Western normative liberal perspective, uh, since uh, individual rights and uh, then extended to the level of a nation, in the sovereignty of nations is a fundamental uh, value, uh, the deprivation of which is the definition of uh, tyranny. Uh, it is desirable, if not uh, obligatory, to try to... Uh, uh, promote and at least to promote, uh, to uh, espouse, and possibly to defend uh, that system. And th that will set up uh, an inevitable clash. There are two incompatible uh, views of the world. Now, I think there's a solution to the, to the uh, incompatible uh, philosophies, but uh, it's a, a delicate one. That's why I said I was a liberal realist. Uh, we have seen for 80 years since World War II that it is possible uh, to have uh, a, an international system that is not zero-sum, that doesn't threaten the existence of a state, and that does not oblige all states to compete by seeking the destruction of anyone who, who uh, hinders the advance of, uh, of a given nation's views. But to defend that, one has to act in a realpolitik way, which, of course, then uh, makes it easy for the Russians, in this case, to claim that their uh, adversaries, me or the Americans, are, of course, being hypocritical and uh, speaking one way and acting another. But So you have overlapping, if not identical, uh, clashes that have led to what's happening. You have uh, the Russian realpolitik view the irredentism of the Vladimir Putin, 
seeking to restore Russian greatness and influence. Uh, on one side, you have the normative uh, system of liberal democracies and individual rights on the other, seeking to either protect or um, expand uh, uh, its uh, system. So you have a combination of history and philosophy. And, and it's very important to mention the personal resentments and grievance. And, and here Vladimir Putin is, pardon me for painting, using a very broad brush, pretty typically Russian. Uh, and the Russians combine um, defensiveness and a, a chip on their shoulder towards the West, an inferiority complex and uh, arrogance altogether, um, which makes it difficult to deal with them. I, 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 one little anecdote and then I'll, I'll stop. I thought when the Berlin Wall fell, naively, I thought, well, now that this system that has been imposed on so many has collapsed, surely my counterparts, a number of whom were my friends, or Russian counterparts, will now seek to take uh, rational decisions and, uh, and embrace the, the Western uh, norms. And, and I have found that for many, really for the apparatchiks, that has not been the case. And they're quite sincere in their views. They do view Western norms as um, decadent and a threat. And that's a legitimate position to have, I suppose. Uh, certainly not mine. But uh, they, many of the influential individuals uh, in the Russian governmental structure, in particular the intelligence services, uh, do not embrace and they vehemently reject and oppose the Western norms. Now, one last thing, you know, it's true Jeffrey Sachs's policies led to catastrophe, but it's also true that for 30 years, um, I would argue increasing percentage of Russian society um, has come to aspire to not just Western material goods, but the Western norms of behavior, which would be freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, individual rights, um, uh, limitations on the power of the state. Um, but you know, they aren't the ones who control the guns or the intelligence services for the moment. Well, what do you talk about Russian resentment and the curious uh, conflicted Russian um, psyche? which is at the same time assertive and aggressive and confident, uh, but at the same time has a sense of an inferior, inferiority complex. That could be used to describe any of the conquered societies. You could use it to describe the Chinese. They weren't exactly conquered, but they did suffer. You could describe, use that to describe the Indians. You could use that even for many in the Middle East. So uh, what is it that's so different about Russia? Is it that they have nuclear weapons? Is it that they have commodities? Uh, is it that they have military experience and intelligence experience? Is it that they fell under the sway of communism and therefore developed uh, global aspirations? So what makes Russia different? Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question. Um, and, and your point about <clears throat> the uh, resentment and wariness of uh, the West, hostility towards the West, uh, inferiority complex with um, strong, combined with strong uh, national pride, uh, um, 
does well describe any uh, post-colonial society. Now, Russia was never colonial, but Russia's had the misfortune, like Ukraine, even worse, of uh, being um, for significant parts geographically on flat plains that are uh, easy to invade, whether it be from the west, the north, or the east. Um, and so that has made for a, uh, a wary, suspicious um, culture, uh, and understandably so, given the last 1,500 years of Russian-Ukrainian history. Um, so I think that is a fundamental uh, point that you make about uh, the influence of uh, colonization or external uh, domination, perhaps is, is more appropriate in the Russian context. Uh, what would make Russia unique? Uh, I don't know that anything in particular does. I mean, they have their particularities of history and culture, given their region, uh, which makes the Ukraine issue a particularly sensitive one, uh, impossible to dissociate from uh, Russian history or or European history. Um, and And I actually think that the influence sort of surprisingly coming from someone who who grew up shaped by the Cold War as defining the world, that the influence of communism is, is quite secondary to, uh, to Russia. I mean, you've pointed out, we both have uh, in our talks and writings that almost instantaneously with the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the communist uh, influences were were largely uh, relegated to the proverbial ash heap of history. And immediately, uh, Russian uh, uh, pan-Slavism, uh, Russian um, pride in, in history and in the ethnic eth uh, Russian uh, culture and nation, uh, and in the history of Catherine the Great and Peter the Great and so on, uh, all immediately uh, returned this... Uh, mystical uh, belief in the uniqueness of Russian culture as opposed to, clearly as opposed to uh, the decadent West or the, uh, the looming dangerous uh, East. So that's a, a particular Russian history, but, but every country has its own particular history. And otherwise, I think uh, they are uh, resentful of... Um, of the West for uh, condescending. Well, um, Russia is not uh, any other country. Uh, Russia is the world's biggest exporter of natural gas, the second biggest exporter of oil, the third biggest exporter of coal. In fact, 50%, and this is something very few people know, 50% of the USA or of the United States' uranium imports come from Russia. 25% of battery-grade nickel comes from Russia. About 10% of aluminium and copper comes from Russia. Palladium, which is a key component uh, of automobiles and electronics, that's come from, that comes from Russia. Now, you know, I could go on, but there's one fact which is, which is uh, important. It's telling that the London Metal Exchange suspended nickel trading only for the second time in its 145-year history. And Russia is integrated into the modern globalized economy. Russia is uh, a fundamental part of uh, 
not just energy, but of supply chains and even of clean energy. If you want to drive cars, electric cars, which, Glenn, you do, you like electric cars, and then you need nickel, and, and that is immediately affected by all of this going on, the war, the sanctions, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, freezing out of Russia from the uh, financial system. Uh, in fact, let's say if none of that existed, even then you couldn't, wouldn't be able to get things because um, of logistics. Um, no one is insuring ships on the Black Sea. Maersk and, and MSC, the two great container companies, they are not operating. So we are in this curious phenomenon wherein energy prices are shooting up, food prices are shooting up, fertilizers are shooting up. Uh, we have inflation uh, increasing. And so my question to you is, what are the consequences of this conflict? What happens now? We've had a bish-bash-bosh and we'll have a conflict, but what happens now to the world? You know, right, which really is the uh, the larger question even. Uh, uh, I wrote a piece not too long ago saying poor Ukraine for all the horror and devastation that it has and will experience. Uh, it is in some ways secondary to the larger story, which is that this is a global, truly a global event. Um, and each day it continues, it becomes more so. Uh, so I think we've, this, as you pointed out, I think we've touched upon the why this is happening, a realpolitik versus the liberal system, uh, frankly, paranoia by Russian uh, elites and one man in particular, uh, imperial irredentism, uh, nostalgia for empire need, the feeling of a need to establish buffer states and, uh, and return Russia to greatness and and revenge against an imperious and condescending West. Okay, fine. But as you say, those things all lead to really the big questions. And, and I am becoming progressively alarmed uh, at what the consequences will be. Uh, if I'll, I'll jump ahead of energy just for a moment and talk about food. Uh, you gave me the statistic in one of our conversations over the past several weeks that uh, I think it's 80%. I think 60 to 70, and in some countries even 80%. Of the wheat grain imports um, in the Middle East, Egypt in particular, Lebanon and other states, uh, comes directly from Ukraine and secondarily from uh, Russia. Those two countries together account for, I think it's 25% of the world grain uh, exports. I think India imports substantial amounts of grain from uh, Russia <clears throat> and Ukraine. So what will happen? I think not just India now price. is self-sufficient, Glenn. India used to. Uh, so okay. India has moved on. India, in fact, is a food surplus country. And India just sent 50,000 tons of wheat to Afghanistan. A fact uh, very few people know. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. Well, the good news amidst the uh, the bad news then. Uh, but this, as we've touched upon, I think, in, in other uh, talks, at least uh, alluded to quickly, it's not simply a matter that food prices will go up. For, for me, sitting in a wealthy suburb of, or distant suburb of, uh, of Boston, it's it's almost a so what. People can grouse over their cocktails that, that prices have gone up a bit. <clears throat> but uh, in Egypt... 
it's a matter of the stability of the state. If, if the price of bread increases, then there are literally riots in the street because people are almost literally living on the edge of subsistence. Uh, it is, there, there are very few buffers. And so <clears throat> what I think... As someone this one said, uh, you know, the, the frequency and probability, the pro possibility and probability of revolutions is uh, directly proportional to the price of bread and maybe, and maybe rice. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, but somewhat amazingly, it's not a facetious or flippant comment. It's literally true. The way the Roman Empire maintained stability was through providing bread and circuses, entertainment. And in China, and, it's and rice. Bread. In Vietnam, it's, it's rice. It's, so it's bread it's and rice, rice you know, directly Absolutely. proportional to the price of bread and or wheat. Definitely. Oh, sorry, wheat and or rice. Yes. And, and so truly, we may see uh, the uh, destabilization of uh, states in the Middle East from this. I'm not predicting that Egypt will see another revolution, uh, but the uh, risk of that, of instability, uh, is is markedly increased in the Middle East in particular. Yeah, particularly Lebanon. If, Lebanon has only one month, one month of uh, supplies after that explosion. They can't store. Their storage facilities have gone down, and they are a multi-ethnic state. Uh, with an economy yeah. that is already on its back, what happens now? And, well, this is, it's a horrifying prospect. Now, the Syrian civil war was caused, the, the proximate and probably the decisive cause, frankly, was the American invasion of Iraq, which <clears throat> I think destabilized the entire uh, region. But the, the proximate cause, and perhaps uh, the cause without which Syria might have maintained its precarious stability, whatever one thinks of this of the Assad regime, was in this instance not food being um, not delivered from, uh, not imported, but rather not being produced because of, frankly, of climate change and, and a severe drought, which devastated the agricultural sector, forced many people to, frankly, seek work and become de facto refugees in the cities of Syria, which overwhelmed the services capability of the state and destabilized the state. And then, then people started to go at each other's throats based on sectarian lines. Now, I'm not dismissing, I spent 20 years, 30 years of my life going after terrorists, um, and they were a factor also, but uh, the fundamental factors were, were related to food, and in that instance, agriculture you know, failure. In this current instance, it's war, which is stopping the export from the granary of the world, which will be very uh, destabilizing, absolutely destabilizing, and probably not just in the Middle East, but certainly there. Energy has a similar, um, and in some ways, simultaneously contradictory effects as energy prices, which means petroleum uh, in its various forms. Prices go up, course, that will uh, stress uh, the entire global economy, uh, the developed economies most, and the most energy-intensive ones being the most developed ones the most directly. So that leads to inflation, which we're seeing not only because of the war, but uh, the war is contributing to the rise of inflation uh, in the world, and that will lead 
probably at some point to a recession, uh, and uh, because that will make uh, interest rates go up, that will make it harder to purchase a home, to buy a car, um, salaries will have to go up, and uh, that will strain the developed economies. But at the same time, if energy prices uh, come uh, down uh, significantly, then uh, the energy producing states cannot uh, make ends meet. So there, there is a, um, a very fine path to, trod, to tread uh, between the two extremes that we are going to be unable to tread for, for now. So the global economy is certainly going to take a hit. Now, all of these things, inflation doesn't affect production really for six to 18 months. It depends on the interest rates and so on. But uh, certainly in the United States and, and everywhere, uh, inflation has become a concern, which means it will have political consequences, uh, which are not good for the incumbents, not good for the Democrats in the case of the United States. And if you have... Uh, a recession come to the developed econ economies following on uh, food-induced uh, stresses on the uh, less developed, less prosperous countries, then you have two elements leading to a, a true uh, global crisis. Yeah, and that is what a lot of uh, economists and uh, analysts have been writing about. In fact, there have been headlines uh, like a toxic mix of recession uh, you know, risks hang over, hangs over the world economy. Uh, there has been uh, commentary about inflation, the energy crisis, even the Omicron outbreak in China. I mean, the challenge is that it's a perfect storm. Um, energy, food and fertilizers have all become interlinked because, as we know, fertilizers come uh, often uh, come from natural gas and Belarus, Ukraine and Russia produce a lot of it. And so there's been already uh, a huge amount of pressure on the global economy. Uh, governments ran large deficits. Governments ran, uh, or not governments, central banks ran loose monetary policy that added to inflationary pressures. This is what the economists in the U.S. Treasury and this is what... Um, uh, bankers, central bankers, not investment bankers, <laughs> although investment bankers also say this, but central bankers are more credible there, uh, at least on a good day. And, uh, and uh, uh, given those pressures, now a supply shock can really cause havoc, uh, particularly for the poor countries who have a debt crisis, who already were grimly countenancing uh, uh, austerity in some ways. Uh, uh, Greece already is facing problems. The inflation rates in Germany, for instance, have shot up. And, and, and we are facing this uh, uh, curious phenomenon wherein uh, should inflation hit, should the world economy turn uh, to recession, uh, then it raises a bigger question. Uh, if that happens, will NATO stick together? Will people... Um, in various countries be willing to put up with the bane? Will the EU continue expanding? In Hungary, we've just seen Viktor Orban win and win resoundingly. He's got a fourth term. Uh, 
and he's not exactly. It helps when you rig. <laughs> it helps when you rig the election. But, but he did. Win. Uh, uh, well, you you won't find me saying too much positive about uh, that. He may have or may not have. But the point is that uh, Marine Le Pen is doing well in her opinion polls as well. So uh, the big question becomes: is that should there be economic pain? Will NATO keep expanding? Will the EU keep expanding? Glenn, shoot. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think you, you touch upon. I mean, these are fundamental issues, but the 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 why um, behind Viktor Orban or uh, Marine Le Pen's um, significance uh, is an issue. I think we've touched upon in other fora, but uh, it's certainly worth talking about. Don't uh, only to t- only to mention here because today we're talking about the the Russian invasion. Uh, but that, that's an even deeper issue of society's reactions to the consequences of globalization and modernization, uh, really. Um, Orban uh, uh, and all of his uh, similar like-minded people on the right, and I would include Donald Trump, uh, Vladimir Putin, Marine Le Pen, and other populists, nationalists, fascists, and, uh, ultra- and conservatives, so social conservatives uh, react to um, fear the other uh, in in direct proportion to the increasing pace of change and the loss of traditional hierarchies and so on. Um, so there, there's a, that's a, a deep, deep important issue, but not one that I can directly attribute to mm. Russian invasion. But of it Ukraine. exacerbates these strengths. That's the point I'm making: is when you have economic hardship. Uh, when you had Absolutely. the collapse in Germany, when you had hyperinflation in the 20s, that paved the way for the Nazi party. And my point is not that these are new trends. These are longstanding trends. I've written about them for for a while, almost a decade. But the point is that now you know, they may be exacerbated. And it may also lead to pressures of what... Um, uh, many analysts, many commentators, journalists, economists, etc., are calling slobalization. They're saying, you know, we'll see a shortening of supply chains because actually, uh, if you have supply chains that are very intricate, uh, that are inextricably interlinked, you can have a war and suddenly you can't get cars or suddenly you can't get masks, as we discovered during COVID. So there'll be shortening of supply chains. There'll be reshoring. Uh, people are talking about the end of the peace dividend. Uh, one of the military right, attaches right. said that when you have peace for a long time, you get uh, peace dementia. And Europe ended up having peace dementia. And now Europe will have to increase its spending, which means that uh, taxes will go up, which means Europe will have at the same time perhaps uh, a bigger state and a smaller state. What he meant by that was that there will be pressure on the welfare state. So maybe there'll be less uh, uh, visits to the to the doctor, um, less visits to the dentist, but uh, uh, more um, jets, more missiles. So uh, I, the point uh, uh, I, I was making is that what does this trigger, you know, internally, externally, does it mean now that there's a Russia-China axis, or does it mean now, uh, so far at least, the state-backed uh, petroleum companies are not buying Russian oil? Or does that mean that the China and the U.S. have some sort of quiet rapprochement? Because China sees the yeah. price of uh, mm. 
of underestimating the West uh, and the financial costs of doing so? Um, or does it mean the, the dollar is weakened because the West has used its nuclear option when it comes to uh, uh, financial instruments, SWIFT, um, you know, banning Russia from SWIFT or seizing central bank reserves? And we are going to see a move towards a petro yuan. So, I mean, the possibilities are galore. We don't have uh, time until tomorrow to discuss this, but I'd love to hear, uh, you know, what flows on from here, Glenn. Yeah, it does seem a, uh, a turning point. Uh, what's the expression that uh, the uh, Chancellor uh, uh, Schultz used? It's, uh, I'm forgetting my German, it's a, um, a bend in the road is how it translates, but it's, it sounds better in German. <laughs> uh, it's more decisive. It's a more decisive implication than, than the expression I just used. I, I think that is, this is correct. And uh, I think in many ways, however Ukraine... Um, the, the war ends. Strategically, Putin has made a catastrophic mistake from his perspective because um, he has, I think, weakened his geopolitical position. Uh, but it's also fractured the, um, at least the, the uh, what one imagined was the international uh, system or the direction of the international system. And, and it is now again closer to a, a bipolar, uh, divided Cold War world where the, uh, the norms, whether there's increasing free trade or retrenchment is, is secondary. That will be on one side, a globalized economy, and, and on the other, a, a opposing um, a sort of national top-down uh, system. China's the big question. It, it, it has played... I, I think it's uh, gotten off the hook more than it actually should uh, by presenting itself formally as uh, in, not party to the dispute and hoping for, for peace and not taking sides, when in fact its intelligence services and its propaganda mechanisms and have been pretty strongly hostile to the, to the West, to the United States uh, in, in all of this. However, uh, as you pointed out, uh, China is different from Russia in that it doesn't it doesn't reject the uh, international order that it that it uh, uh, can't measure up to, but uh, but that it profits from and is progressively being more influential in, if not coming to be the first among equals in various uh, domains. So it's a an open question uh, how, as we go forward, China will uh, respond to this. I I, I don't see them. Uh, killing the the uh, goose that lays the golden eggs of international integration and trade, or certainly they don't want to. Uh, and I think they have been given pause, uh, seeing how hard it is to invade and subsume a country uh, with respect to Taiwan. I, I've long thought that uh, China can achieve most of what it, it seeks by just continuing to do what it's done for the last 30 years. Um, but the rise in Xi Jinping's nationalist perspective uh, places that somewhat in doubt. I, I think perhaps they might rethink that, uh, but I'm always wary of projecting what I think is a, a rational perspective <laughs> onto a foreign, <laughs> onto a foreign leader. Um, but I think we're going to clearly the, we'll see a continued for a long period of time now this uh, more divided world uh, 
is not as clearly moving towards uh, global integration. Uh, but then if Putin disappears, I, there, there are large numbers of the Russian elite and the population who are appalled at what's happened and and aspire fundamentally to being a uh, a state like uh, Ukraine hoped to be. Well, uh, you know that may happen, but you know going back to uh, to to what you were talking about, Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, and uh, he was addressing the Bundestag on twenty fourth of February, and uh, he called. Um, Zeitenwende, which obviously mm-hmm. sounds wonderful. It, there it, it is. means turning from. Your German is better yeah, than mine. No, no, it isn't. It's 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 uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh, the privilege of living with Germans for two years uh, or a year in a bit uh, in the same house. Um, it it means turning from one epoch to another. I hope I've got that right. Um, and and uh, it. it could be, as you said, uh, going back to the Cold War, or it could be going back to the pre-World War I, um, tripolar, bipolar spheres, because what we are seeing very interestingly is that um, whilst Europe is very united uh, over Ukraine, a lot of people are positing, um, a lot of people are positing uh, um, in the former colonies that, look, there's a war on in Tigray, uh, there's a Tigray war in Ethiopia, half a million have died, and there's no coverage. So this war matters only because it's white people in Ukraine. Right. And that's <clears throat> a persistent and recurring theme all across uh, Africa, all across Asia, um, which is where I come from. In fact, a video went viral by a, a rather uh, you know, a populist channel, which, which went on about the racism in coverage. And yeah, and yeah. that is something that may just be passing, but uh, maybe there's something more there. Maybe we are headed to a tripolar, uh, bipolar world. Maybe globalization ends. Maybe it is going to be uh, more autarkic, uh, more um, uh, national security concerns dominated. Uh, um, economies going forward. It's certainly a Zeitenwende. I, I, I think this ends what some people are saying, the post, post-Cold War era. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you made two, two big points. The, the uh, easier one, first, the, the concern of what used to be called the third world, post-colonial states, uh, uh, modernizing states, less developed, uh, poorer, all of the above states the resentment about the attention being paid to the war in Ukraine as opposed to what's happening in Eritrea or the Congo uh, or Sudan or you choose the the point where horrible things have happened. Uh, oh, I, Afghanistan, I which people are very cross in India that it is forgotten. <clears throat> in India, that has led to find, cold fury. It's all understandable. Um, if you're Afghan and you are have a, someone uh, killed that is as devastating as when a Ukrainian dies or, or anyone. Exactly. But I, I actually think that it's um, self-referential uh, and therefore distorting. Uh, it's, it's simply a fact that uh, the, the million dead or more in the uh, fighting in Congo or in Rwanda, where I used to work, <clears throat> Or you choose the the terrible place, um, are less consequential globally. Have been 
in most instances than this current crisis. And it's not only because, it isn't because the, the Ukrainians look like me as a, as a West European, uh, and therefore there's a racist component. Certainly they're closer. One identifies more if one is from Western Europe with someone uh, from Ukraine than someone from Congo. That's, that isn't proof of racism. That's natural. But that's not the fundamental difference. The fundamental difference in why the United States and NATO are paying more attention is that it is both a uh, potentially existential issue for uh, for the Western civilizations or nations, one, and two, it is globally more consequential already. We spent a half hour or whatever it is uh, discussing some of the unavoidable global effects. The million dead in the Congo each of them a horrible uh, loss, um, have not, uh, do not affect the globe in the same way. And that's, that's not meant to be cruel. That, that simply is the case. So I, I find that the, the uh, anger is understandable if you're an Indian with regard to what's happened in Afghanistan and the attention paid to it or lack thereof compared to Ukraine and so on and so forth. Uh, understandable, but I think that it is, uh, it is actually uh, not taking... Uh, in a global sense, uh, measuring the the impact and the consequences uh, in an accurate way. On the tripolar point, there I'm more pessimistic uh, than than you. I think You're per- maybe I don't know. Pessimistic is the word. I don't know that it's a bipolar or tripolar system. And one of the ironies of it could be many more. The, uh, it could be many many abs- that's ma- it. many uh, powers dominating their near neighborhoods. Absolutely. Yeah. This is this is one of the yeah. ironies of the Pax Americana yeah. is that the the success of the of America's um, mission to create this uh, integrated uh, world of uh, democracies and capitalist economies uh, leads to the relative loss of hegemony by the United States. The United States can no longer um, uh, does no longer controls literally more than 50% of the global GNP, which was the case in 1945. Yeah. Today, it's 22%. India is is becoming, if not already, a global power. China, China is a global is, power. It is yeah. a global power. The European Union on economic issues is a global power. It's bigger than the Brazil U.S. Is, economically, it, by some measures. Turkey is yeah. at least a regional yeah. power. So the, the old bipolar or tripolar world is gone. Yeah. It's it's in that sense I agree with you. It's more like pre nineteen fourteen, and it's the hardest uh, condition status in nature to maintain is uh, is a uh, an equilibrium, and as you have more uh, factors in the equation, the equation becomes harder to resolve, and so we're in for uh, unpredictable. <laughs> unpredictable uh, vari- variations as the world is multipolar. So a roller coaster rough ride. Now, we've not had time to go into you know, how warfare might change. We've seen tanks. Oh, yeah, yeah, We've seen tanks have been uh, gutted, um, uh, missiles, uh, anti-tank missiles, and drones have done a good job. Um, we haven't got, uh, we haven't had time uh, to talk about piloted fighter jets and uh, and uh, capital ships with thousands aboard. I mean, we could have talked about many things, but uh, I think in the interests of time, what uh, 
uh, our listeners might be very curious about and what I'm very curious about it is what next uh, can we expect uh, this conflict to end anytime soon because um, maybe Russia is uh, reaching uh, uh, I think it was Clausewitz wasn't it who said uh, it's reaching its culminating point uh, Mm -hmm. uh, do we expect a ceasefire? Will there be a partition? Will NATO jump in? Uh, what does China do? What does Turkey do? Uh, after all, uh, uh, both of them will have uh, roles too. So over to you, Glenn. Uh, educate us. Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> There's an easy question to address. Exactly. Make sense uh, my... of the world for us. That's our motto, Glenn. Make sense of the world. Uh, no less will do. No less will do. <laughs> okay. Well, if I were delusional, or, or at least more delusional than I'm aware of, then I wouldn't hesitate as much to it. Um, <clears throat> doubt is a sign of wisdom, even if it is nothing but the expression of ignorance. So they say. <laughs> <laughs> I must be very wise then, since I know nothing. Um, you know, my I, I write for a magazine in, in Japan, and my editors asked me in December to write, <laughs> to predict the events of the coming year, which is a standard you know, article that, that magazines will put out. And I tried to beg off because uh, a lesson you learn as an intelligence officer in, in an intelligence services that our crystal balls are non-functional. We have no predictive powers, particularly. Uh, golly, the uh, it is very difficult to see a solution that will be acceptable to the Ukraine war uh, to both sides. Uh, at this point, I find I, I th have trouble imagining the Ukrainians really accepting the loss of Donbass and Luhansk, or for that matter, acknowledging the loss of Crimea. Uh, and I find it equally hard to imagine Vladimir Putin accepting that um, to withdraw all his troops, having lost half of his army. Uh, and just said, well, you know, it was a nice vacation, you know, across the border, and now we're going home. <laughs> I, I don't think that's going to happen. So I don't see a, an easy way out. The only conceivable way, you and I spoke before the invasion of a number of ways that, that we thought could have been ways for both sides to declare a victory and uh, avoid a catastrophe. And, and the, I guess the only imaginable thing that I can see is that uh, it, the geog geographical control by Russia and Ukraine, respectively, returns to the status quo ante, to where things were before the invasion, which means that Russia is controlling parts of eastern Ukraine and the Crimea, and the rest is unchanged. And that would just give a hideous lie uh, or futility to the loss of half of Russia's army uh, and personnel and the destruction of large parts of Ukraine. It certainly guarantees whatever the solution, so long as Ukraine remains an independent state, which appears to be certain to be the case, uh, the uh, dramatically increased accelerated westernization integration of, of Ukraine to the West. Now, you can formally join the EU or formally join NATO or not, but the formal aspect is almost secondary to the fundamental cultural economic uh, um, integration that, that will accelerate even beyond what 
was the case between 2014 and 2022. Uh, I, I, China has a chance to play a constructive role, but I frankly think that it's blowing it by um, aligning itself pretty clearly uh, with uh, Russia while trying to stay out of, uh, out of everyone's uh, sights. Um, and so I don't think that they are shaping up to be a decisive uh, influence uh, here. It's the hundredth year of the CCP, isn't it, of the Chinese Communist Party? They're celebrating it this year? Uh, yes, yes, that's right, that's right. And more importantly, it's the, you know, the declaration of Xi Jinping as emperor for life. Yes, of course. Um, so, 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 so they the, are doing gloriously. The they have a glorious, uh, uh, glorious present um, uh, to handle this year. They've got the Ukraine conflict, inflation, uh, Omicron. Um, Omicron, yeah. So, yeah. So, 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 and of course, uh, uh, the, not to not to forget uh, uh, their own increasing defense cooperation with Russia. All of which doesn't seem to bode very well for for their future. It, it doesn't seem that the CCP's future is terribly bright or Xi Jinping will be mortal. It, it, it's, it, yeah, it's a bit of a, I'm a little surprised. Well, forget a little, I am surprised that you, you think, okay, uh, from China's perspective, allying with Russia is the anti-Western hegemony um, uh, option makes sense. And we all have thought, and, and certainly I have, uh, I have about the, about the uh, the great power of the Russian military, and it is large, and and probably was the second or third most powerful in the world. But you would, I would hope that the Chinese leadership, which means Xi Jinping, uh, would make put onto the scale of judgment. Okay, the benefits of aligning myself with the Russian military and society as opposed to the benefits of uh, working out, finding a modus vivendi that's better with uh, the Western economies. And I find it hard to see how they could conclude that uh, aligning with Russia uh, is um, more beneficial. But so far, that's what they've done. Well, we'll see what happens because the West itself, particularly Europe and uh and NATO are going to see tensions as, as economic pressure mounts. Um, Turkey, of course, is playing its own hand, and uh, uh, it is apparently, I hear, uh, the back channel for, for talks with Russia from time to time. Uh, you'd know much more about it than me, and, uh, and uh, uh, there certainly seems to be a very shifting... Uh, chessboard. In fact, the rules of the game are changing, not just the chess mm -hmm. pieces themselves. And uh, there was a Chinese philosopher who said, may you live in interesting times. And boy, oh boy, we certainly do. These are the most interesting of, ti interesting of times I, indeed. I, I think I'd like to ask a last question, which maybe opens another important perspective we haven't touched upon, I, I think, enough. Um, and that is, uh, speak about uh, the approach that India is taking, not just the, because India is a significant global power, 
but as representative perhaps of the dilemmas of um, countries that are, or the options, the aspirations of countries that are not clearly in uh, the Western uh, alliance uh, or um, clearly a part of uh, the Russian Chinese imperium. Well, uh, India is um, is caught between two worlds. Um, obviously, investment in India comes from the U.S. Apparently, Blackstone alone has put a hundred billion dollars in India. Um, India exports a lot to the U.S. India supplies uh, the U.S. with the chief executive officers. Uh, uh, India. Uh, is increasingly seen as a democracy and a counterweight to China. There is the Quad uh, and there's a 2 plus 2 uh, summit uh, very shortly. So India is very much um, deepening its relationships with the U.S. Uh, and uh, indeed uh, the so-called West. Uh, but at the same time, India gets its energy from the Middle East. Uh, India did not like... Um, the fact that it was told it couldn't get any oil from Iran, it lost leverage vis-a-vis uh, -vis Middle East oil producers. India gets uh, its defense equipment largely from Russia, so it needs spares, it needs um, hardware. S-400s are much cheaper than anything you can get uh, from Europe or the U.S. And most importantly, India gets technology transfer from Russia, which... Uh, the U.S. in particular, and even the Europeans, with the exception of France, and in, even France has not been the same as Russia, have been more reluctant about. So India wants to keep um, its economic, uh, geopolitical, um, and military ambitions um, uh, intact, and it doesn't want to jump on any side. And uh, for that matter, India is trying to 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 take uh, uh, the most uh, uh, pragmatic of stands. Uh, India does not want Russia to completely side with China in the case of a conflict. It has two nuclear armed neighbors. India is extremely nervous about a two front war. Should Russia decisively back China, India would be finished. India just cannot act with uh, the impunity that many other countries can. And I think this is precisely the point, is that with the U.S. no longer having 50% of the GNP, countries are no longer willing to say, ah, you know, this is um, a breach of the international order and we'll just side uh, with the U.S. Uh, because of a normative issue. Uh, they're look at the U.S. with far more suspicion because of its recent record in Iraq, um, not to mention things earlier, but also because what can you give us? You have a huge deficit. You can't do the equivalent of a Marshall Plan, so we have to watch out for ourselves. And I think that is where the crux lies. And, uh, and therefore, we are going to see around the world countries acting uh, more and more uh, in terms of their national interest. And we are going back, as you said, to the pre-World War I era. Many spheres of influ influence, uh, many, um, many a roller coaster ahead. Hmm. It's uh, less than a time of opportunity than it is a time of uh, 
anxiety and, and increasing uh, risks for miscalculation? Well, maybe it is a time for opportunity because think of it this way. Uh, uh, for a long time, um, the U.S. Uh, has deindustrialized and all the factories have gone away. And maybe with um, uh, globalization, maybe with reshoring, maybe you'll get the factory flow back because ultimately innovation doesn't really happen within a university. Let's be honest. The first act the United States Congress passed was a protectionist act. And um, all the countries that industrialized, including the UK, had some form of protectionism. Now, protectionism backfired spectacularly when socialist India tried it. So it is a very, very, very blunt tool. But really, when people start working with their hands in the factory floor, when, when they start following what Max Weber called the Protestant work ethic, and they believe in what Martin Luther called work is worship, uh, then they start making things. And out of that, perhaps a more dynamic economy, more innovation, new materials, new ways of manufacturing stuff, uh, a combination of hardware and software. Maybe uh, this is the bump uh, which, uh, which, uh, which the U.S. and the so-called decadent West needed to shake itself out of its stupor. Maybe this is a great time for innovation because, yes, World War I was terrible, but after World War I came votes for women. Yes, World War II was horrific, but after that came the welfare states of Europe. So uh, I'd like to end on a positive note. I'd like to hope that this is a, <laughs> this is a moment for innovation and, and, and uh, a small setback uh, uh, before humanity rebounds and, 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 uh, and marches on to the uh, uh, great sunlit uplands. Well, this, yes, well, for us to end on a, on, a, on a positive note, I will have to remain silent that I think. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Surely, surely you believe in what Churchill said uh, seven and a half decades ago, or more, actually, eight decades ago, perhaps. Well, I, I admire Churchill. I'm, I'm hopeful. I hope that he's speaking the truth, but I also know that uh, no man is a hero to his valet. And uh, the more one knows, the uh, grainier reality becomes. So ah. I'm hopeful, but, but not yeah. an optimist. So on that grainy note, thank you for listening to us. Um, this is, of course, The Dialectic by the Rajput and the Wasp. Um, this is Atul Singh. Um, and of course, Glenn Carl. Um, we look forward to uh, having you listen to this episode, to the next episode, to write to us, to suggest uh, what you'd like uh, us to talk about, to make sense about. Um, and um, and uh, I'll let Glenn have the last word. Send all criticisms to uh, Atul. Uh, I, I welcome the praise. No, I'm being silly. Um, uh, of course, comments are, are welcome. I, I, I never found too much benefit in the, those notes that people write in the bottom of, uh, of, of blog comments and so on online, but, but thoughtful comments are, are indispensable. Okay, until next time. Bye for now. Goodbye.